when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today I'm talking to Brian Seleski, the co-founder and CEO of Argo AI. That's a startup that's trying to build the tech stack for self-driving cars. Now, Argo was founded in 2016, but there are some solid foundations there. Brian and his team were veterans of Google and Uber self-driving groups, and they have major investments from Ford and Volkswagen. Brian is actually one of my favorite people to talk to in the car industry. He's a podcaster himself. His show is called The No Parking Podcast, and he's unusually direct for a tech CEO about what technology can and can't do and on what timeline. For example, a little more than a year ago, Brian was on my other show, The Vergecast, and one of the first questions I asked him was, when are self-driving cars going to happen? And Brian just said, it'll be ready when it's ready. You might compare that to, say, Elon Musk, who in 2019 promised a fleet of one million Tesla robo-taxis on the streets by the end of 2020. Well, it's August 2021, and while that hasn't happened, it turns out Argo just launched a small fleet of robo-taxis in Miami and Austin in partnership with Lyft. You can open the Lyft app and summon a self-driving car to take you to your destination. Now, there are still safety drivers in the cars, but it's another small step towards self-driving in the United States, which, as Brian points out, is actually trailing behind other countries. I wanted to talk to Brian about the partnership with Lyft and see where that's going, but I also wanted to know if the pandemic accelerated any of the investment or development of self-driving cars. After all, we've seen it in so many other industries. And the proposition of having a taxi all to yourself is pretty enticing in the COVID era. Lots of people moving away from offices to work from home might love to have a car that gets them to and from a central office in a city a couple days a week. And of course, I had to ask about 5G. The cell carriers in this country relentlessly hype self-driving as something that 5G would enable. Is that actually happening? Does Brian see 5G as a benefit in the future? His answer might surprise you unless you are a regular listener of the show, and then it might not surprise you at all. Okay, Brian Seleski, CEO of Argo AI. Here we go. Brian Seleski, you're the CEO of Argo AI. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks, good to be here. I spoke to you in February of 2020 on The Vergecast, and then like the whole world flipped over. I'm glad to have you back on Decoder. I feel like maybe the, the frame of our conversation is a little different, but Argo makes self-driving hardware and software for cars. And I'm curious, it, this past year, there's been just a lot of interest in having computers do more for us. You see all the big tech companies are doing better than ever. In your corner of the tech market, did the pandemic change the velocity or direction of self-driving? For us, it didn't really change the direction. You're right, though. When I went to New York, I didn't realize that would be like my last normal, you know, (laughs) pre-COVID business trip. So, (laughs) and actually, I was back to New York last week, and it was neat to see 
you know, streets busy again. And uh, in fact, it seems like people don't want to use the subway right now. So it seems like the surface streets are actually even busier than they had been. Yeah. It did not change really the direction. I mean, if anything, I think it was more urgency to just let's get this technology out there. The convenience and the ability to maybe have a private ride, have the car take you somewhere and not be with anybody else in the car seems like that would be a pretty good value proposition right now as people are, you know, getting more comfortable with being around people again. So I think goods delivery on that front, we've seen a huge uptick and change in customer habits that we knew was happening, but it seems like COVID just really accelerated it, right? I mean, it's a it's kind of now an expectation among customers that there's a goods uh, delivery option for most retail businesses. We knew that was always the case, but but it just seems like all of this has been accelerated. Yeah, that, that's why I wanted to start there. I have a lot of questions about Argo, and you have some news that we should discuss. But again, we, we've just seen so many technology products get uptake in a way that people predicted it would take five years. Zoom, right, I think is the canonical example of the pandemic. Self-driving is one of those things where it's connected to everything from future of work, right? You're going to live farther away and you'll have a self-driving car and it will tootle you into the city whenever you need to go to a city, but mostly you're going to telecommute, live wherever you want to live. Package delivery, e-commerce, again, the cost of goods delivery is a big deal. We've heard about this in the self-driving context for years and years and years, but it seems like the you can't make the products innovate any faster. Right. Even though there's all this pressure to get there, you're still kind of on the same cadence as you were before. Yeah, I think that's true. We're obviously working as quickly as we can because we know that this has real convenience, affordability and, and safety benefits. But at the end of the day, it's ready when it's ready. There's a process that has to be followed. It's a safety critical product as much as it is, uh, I think, a fun and exciting product that folks will really want to use. At least it's good to know that when we are ready and when we do start scaling out, there's a real market for this. I think right now there's a, a lot of small businesses wondering, wait a second, how do I kind of get my piece of the e-commerce that's happening? And part of what they struggle with is how do I get my products from A to B into the customer's doorstep as efficiently as some of the the more kind of giant retail brands, right? I think what's cool about self-driving tech is that it has the promise to provide that A to B delivery efficiently and give them a chance to compete. Nothing I say on this podcast will ever will ever happen overnight, but I think this is where it's going. And, and the fact that we can give small businesses uh, more of an equal footing at some point, I think is interesting. So let's talk about Argo. How many people is Argo? How many people work there? Uh, I think we're approaching 1,400 now. And how is that structured? We have engineering offices here in the U.S. as well as uh, in Munich, uh, Germany. We've got a fairly large workforce across our test cities that help us test and operate the vehicles, as well as a obviously a sizable product development engineering workforce that builds the technology. You, you make hardware and software that allows cars to drive themselves. But I was just looking at your website. Your website's really interesting. It has your podcast on it. It has a bunch of values, description of how Argo works, but it doesn't does this product have a name? Does like the Argo tech stack have a name that you use to describe itself? So we don't have a name for it yet. And I think that's some more of what you'll see in the coming year as we start to get closer to launching. What we talk about today is just explaining. We do a lot of explaining around self-driving. And that's what the podcast is for. That's why we have groundtruthautonomy.com. These are properties to help folks that see our cars in cities today. They want to know more. You know, Why are you here? What are you doing? What's the benefit? That's a lot of what we focus on at the moment. But at the end of the day, what we are is a platform that enables lower cost and safer mobility. And it has the potential to move not just people, but also goods. And really, we've got an extensive footprint, probably larger than any other AV developer at this point. Seven cities and counting where we're really testing across some of the hardest uh, areas, whether it be in the core of Miami, Austin, D.C., it's been a great learning experience, and it's also given us an advantage in that we have a lot of really important and valuable data in those cities now that helps us build a self-driving tech stack. Where it's all going, though, is it's a platform that, at least today, we're, we're working on a number of vehicles with uh, both Ford and Volkswagen 
it will enable those vehicles to do real work in these major cities across the world. Ford and Volkswagen are obviously gigantic car companies. They're good at things like alloy wheels and leather seats and right. They make cars. You don't make cars. What is the Argo product? Where does it begin and end? The product is really at its core, a whole lot of software that runs on some pretty specialized hardware that connects to a car in a safe way. And I would say those car companies do a lot more than just leather seats <laughs> and, and, and wheels. I don't know if you're setting me up here, but uh, uh, I mean, they're increasingly becoming software companies in their own right. And in fact, if you look at the car as a digital device, there's actually an API, and it's a really important one that you know we interface with to be able to control basic things like steering and braking. And being able to do that in a safe and secure way is actually not trivial. So, you know, heavy respect for what they do and working in concert with the automakers and working in a really close and collaborative way, make sure that those interfaces are done right and in a secure and safe way. They put a specialized computer in their car. It runs your software. Do you have any hardware demands? Is there a set of sensors that you require? Is there stuff that you make or is it off the shelf? How does that part work? Yeah, it's sort of an amalgamation of things. So they certainly have computing that their control software operates on. We have, it almost looks like a mini data center in the car that's able to process data from sensors that are positioned all around it. So the car is able to see through sensors that we make as well as buy, is able to see 360 degrees around it, 400 meters away, is able to see day, night, and is able to pick up on things that I would venture to say most human drivers don't even necessarily see or notice. And so many times a second, the car is reading in that information and making decisions about how to uh, navigate it through the street. One of the unique aspects people ask me all the time, well, how's it any different than how a human thinks about things? Well, the difference is a human's sort of picking the top two or three things that are relevant at the time. And if they make a mistake in that judgment and they pick the wrong thing to focus on, or if they're distracted, Typically, that's when collisions happen, right? The advantage with self-driving tech is that our software stack can reason about literally thousands of objects at the same time and be tracking each individual bike, pedestrian, and car that's in a busy surface street and be able to extrapolate not just what are they doing now, but what are they going to be doing several seconds in the future. It doesn't get tired. It doesn't get distracted. It's always learning and improving. And this is where the safety proposition comes from. It's funny that you described, use that, set of phrases to describe a safety proposition because that is also the description of the, the Terminator. Right? <laughs> well, it doesn't I don't think get it's tired. That. It won't ever give up. Like it's the no, same, but, but yeah, it, <laughs> I, I think, uh, I think that that movie I think is more about like self-aware, self-aware, <laughs> a thing that has become like completely freely autonomous in the world. That's not what we're talking about here, right? These vehicles follow a set of very strict rules and are highly supervised. This is not like generalized artificial intelligence. This is a highly skilled device for doing sort of one thing and one thing really, really well. The last time we talked, we had this great line about how a self-driving car would perceive and react to the, to the world around it. And you were like, it turns out the rules are encoded all around us. It's, it's just traffic regulations and there's signs and roads and like we just have to understand it and the car will know how to drive in any city that it's in. I feel like, you know, it's, it's been a winding journey. Has that proven out? Is that still how you see it? Or do you need more and better structured map data about the world around you to make self-driving happen? Yeah, I mean, I don't immediately remember what I, what I said in that regard. I, I guess um, what... Um, you certainly need to know those rules, but you know our maps really encode a lot more than just what is encoded in a street sign. We make notes around what the behaviors are that you would expect at certain intersections. Is it certain peak times, it is socially acceptable in the heart of a city to block the what's called blocking the box or basically pulling into the intersection in order to get all the way through. And if you don't do that, you're never going to get a turn. Um, mm -hmm. There's other places where if you do that, you're going to get honked at and run off the road. So we do encode certain contextual information so that we can act as kind of naturally as possible with kind of what the norms are that, that the traffic in that local area would expect. That is a painstaking process, but certainly something we've learned is, is important for people to uh, accept it. You know, it's one of these unique products in that the customer is not just the rider in the car. 
The customer is actually the bike that's riding next to us, the pedestrian that's crossing in front of the vehicle. The customer is really, it's the environment around us in addition to whatever work the vehicle is doing at the time. It all matters for a community to be okay with having self-driving cars. The reason I ask that is it feels like we started 10 years ago with self-driving cars are going to change the world. And every company and every executive I talk to working on the problem to someone naturally, and I, I think extremely understandably, developed a much more nuanced appreciation of the problem. And things like, all I need to do is OCR the local traffic manual, you know, like 15-year-old kids have to learn to get their driver's license and tell a computer to do it, and we're off and running to, oh, there's a bunch of norms in various cities that we need to encode in a semantic way into the actual maps of the car. That's a, that's a new kind of understanding, I think, from the industry. At the same time, it feels like the dream has gotten much farther away. I don't know that that concept is new. I mean, I, I think it's something that we've understood over the last decade is that um, it isn't enough to just sort of see and understand the world. You also have to predict what it's going to do. Things are in motion. You have to operate in and among other human drivers if you're in an overly robotic way, the car is going to be constantly starting and stopping and moving left and right in ways that you know, an external observer would say, what the heck is this thing doing? I think we've understood that in the last many years. I will say, I mean, look, I started doing robotics in like 2004 or five in that neighborhood. I do remember my one of the first assignments I had, we were building a simulator and uh, it was kind of like, okay, we were at the whiteboard and like very little prior art existed uh, in, in the ex application we were in. And it was like, all right, let's start making a list of all the things that we're going to encounter in the world. <laughs> so I'm staring, as new new to this industry, I'm staring at the whiteboard with, with a marker and I'm looking at a guy that's been doing this for 15 years and I thought to myself, is this really the starting point? <laughs> right? That's hilarious. So yes, we have come a long way since those times. I think that the dream is was always suspect if the dream was... We're going to deploy millions of cars and go for, go from like literally zero self-driving cars on the street to millions in a couple of years. That that just doesn't change doesn't happen that quickly. On the other hand, if you look at it from a basic compute and storage and silicon standpoint, we've made substantial progress in the 17 years I've been doing this. Right, and I've now seen probably three major generations or inflection points of how we approach the autonomy problem. In, in that in a fairly short period of time, so I, I, this all depends on your frame of reference, Neilai, and I guess and in, in, in which which headlines you're reading and believing. Yeah, I would say even in the past year, we've seen a lot more solutions get deployed to consumers. They're maybe level two autonomy, but they're much more widespread. Sidewalk are, robots. My brother was uh, was on campus at uh, University of Pittsburgh. He sent me a picture of a sidewalk robot that was delivering books. Um, yeah. This was a bit earlier, right? And I mean, I think it's cool that we see this now. This is coming into everyday life. Yeah, I think DoorDash has robots in San Francisco delivering food. So we're seeing it. But given your sweep and your experience, is this past year, is it as much of a jump as it can kind of feel like from the outside? For me, it's not so much a jump. I think it's just the natural evolution of things. But maybe I have a different perspective. I still stand by what I what I wrote a few years ago. Everybody said that I was um, not bullish enough. Right? I was just being a realist, which was <laughs> fully autonomous cars are going to cars that don't require any operation with the no human in the loop required. It's going to be modest deployments in cities, and it'll scale from there. And I think I think we're seeing that across the industry. You know, at some point, we probably will look back, and there'll be an inflection point where we can say, "Wow, that was the point where it like hockey sticked in terms of growth and scale." We are not there yet, and I, I still predict we're a few years away from that. Okay, one more sweeping question, and then I want to talk about Argo itself. You are a unique CEO in that the decisions you make, obviously, they're you're not deploying this at scale tomorrow. We're, we're talking years, maybe decades. How do you make decisions operating on that timeline? Well, for, for me, I focus on the customer. I, I think it's really easy when, you, when you're building something this complex and you're sort of immersed in the tech day in and day out. It's easy to deliver a solution that doesn't quite meet what people need, right? So you have to really be customer obsessed to steer and direct the company and the development. So I look at it through a customer's eyes. 
Is this the right thing to do? Is this meeting the promise that we made? And the promise is embedded in our core values, and that's why they're on our website, right? Is safety is number one. So I use those values, and I try to put myself in the customer's shoes and all the decisions we're making to guide what we do and, and how we do it. And I, I think we'll build a stronger company and a stronger culture that way and hopefully be around for a long time if we continue to follow that principle. But what's the customer feedback loop here? Is it the Ford program manager for a car? Is it, you mentioned even the other people on the street? Who, who's the person saying this product isn't good enough, make it better? I mean, it's the whole company, right? We all try it. We all try it out, but it's also partners, it's investors. There's a lot of feedback that comes in every day. We even get people that write us to our uh, company email address says, hey, I saw your car. Does it do this? Does it do that? There's a lot of interest. So one of the things that we did, we announced recently is a partnership with Lyft where Later this year, we'll be offering rides on their network in Austin and Miami. I'm really looking forward to that because that is going to be uh, an opportunity to get, you know, true customer feedback that will be sort of real time, if you will, as we're as we're delivering the rides. It's going to be interesting and something that we're all looking forward to. You've been testing in Miami for a few years. Was that just a natural extension, the Lyft partnership to actually go to consumers in Miami? Yes, I think so. We looked at Miami several years ago as a, a really welcoming market to autonomy. The folks there have been um, are, are interested in the, in the technology, are interested in trying new things. It has good weather, which is a good place to start. Um, <laughs> well, good weather is a pretty like it has some pretty bad weather too, right? It has some bad weather. I will say the bad weather we can handle. Uh, we can handle pretty heavy rain at this point. The system was actually just operating in a really heavy rainstorm in Austin yesterday, and it was remarkable how well it worked. So, you know, we're cracking that, and, you know, eventually we'll get to snow and other things. Miami's just been a, a fantastic city for us. How many cars are you deploying in Miami with Lyft? The number varies, but uh, at any given, um, any given month, we have anywhere 30 to 40 vehicles. So what are the, if you're a Lyft customer in Miami and you want to try out an Argo car, can you request it specifically or is it luck of the draw? So not yet. So we just announced the partnership. We've got some integration to do to you know hook up our systems. But later this year, yeah, you'll, you'll have an, in some areas, you'll have an option to uh, pick an Argo AV. And do those vehicles have safety drivers in them? They will have safety drivers in them. Uh, we have an opportunity to ask questions about the tech and learn more about it. Are those, is it multiple people? So we have two people in the car uh, at all times today, yeah. And are they Argo employees? Are they Lyft employees? How does that relationship work? Uh, they will be Argo employees, or they are Argo employees. And then I, uh, when when they're driving folks around on the Lyft network, they're, I guess, wearing two hats, if you will. They're also uh, Lyft drivers at that instant in time as well. Are these cars that you have built, are they Lyft cars that you've retrofitted Describe the actual product. So these will be Ford Escape Hybrid vehicles, which is a you know third or fourth generation of vehicle that, that we're on at this point from from Ford, uh, sort of the evolution of vehicles. It has all of the sensors and and computing hardware that you, you know you need in order to drive fully self driving on its own. We just are not taking the drivers out yet because you know the product is still frankly being tested. We're still adding new features. And as the vehicle gets more and more capable, we work our way toward a state where we can start to remove the drivers. What does more capable mean? Just being able to handle various corner cases, whether it be um, emergency vehicles doing different maneuvers or, uh, you know, we recently added in fairly substantial updates that allow us to operate really well in areas where there's heavy construction or unmapped uh, signage. You know, all of those things are things that need to be handled that go beyond basic driving functionality and are the realities of the real world. So we're very much in the tail of that development. You described cars as like sophisticated digital devices with an API. Are these escapes, do they just come off the line? Do you have to go down to the dealer? Do you have to haggle like with the dealer? <laughs> no, I don't. It turns out the, yeah, Ford's investment in us prevents me from having to haggle <laughs> at the dealer, thankfully. Um, <laughs> no, no, we, these are, these are prototype vehicles that okay. are, um, so they're special. They're, they're special, but they're they're off the production line. They have they have modifications made uh, to them. Those modifications are heavily tested before the public would ever be offered a ride in them. So the public is seeing sort of a very very well tested robust system when they ultimately would get a ride uh, in our vehicles. Are those? I'm just curious where the where the line is between Ford and Argo. So 
Ford pulls them off and modifies them with a bunch of Ford stuff, and then you add the Argo computing and software, or are you doing the whole thing? So we co-design with Ford the modifications to the vehicle to accept the self-driving hardware. So we work together with them on the locations of sensors and what the best way is to power them and, and how to take care of all the different potential failure modes. You know, what if power goes out? What if brakes fail? What if, you know, lots of what ifs, right? And we work with them to sort through those things and, and make sure we have a safe product. And then ultimately that design gets vaulted and sent ultimately to production, right? And that's where a factory will produce a base vehicle that looks very much similar to what would go uh, to a dealer. Before that step, the self-driving tech is applied sort of as, a, a, as an upfit or an option on the vehicle. Um, and then, you know, ultimately they come to us for, for deployment. So there's a lot of brands here, right? There's Ford, there's Argo, there's Lyft. Do you want the Lyft riders to know they're in an Argo vehicle? Does, it, does that matter to you? I think they want to know. They want to know who's driving me, right? And and how is that built? And what are the, uh, what, tell me more about that company, right? I think it's a, those are natural questions, and, and we'll be working to to answer those as part of the partnership. I, th- this initial phase is a relatively small number of cars. It's it's you know less than a, less than a hundred across um, a few cities, and uh, it's an opportunity for frankly Lyft, Argo, and Ford to collectively learn about the experience we're offering and and what do customers want to see in future cycles of the product. And I think all three brands are going to learn a lot. The reason I ask is I think about the other pieces of a car and some of them car companies cannot help but label, right? Like the the stereo in a car always right. has some brand that has been licensed and right. It's just a, it's just a label yep. and the label can actually change. And I always wonder if those, Stereo companies had anything to do with the stereo in a car beyond selling a label. But then there's stuff like, I don't know, standard cruise control. I have no idea who the supplier for the cruise control in my current Ford is. Right. It's just part of Ford's system. Is self driving going to be the stereo with a prominent brand or is it going to be on intermittent wiper controls? What you might be asking is, is it going to become commoditized, right? Because you, 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 you would say that like wipers and cruise, basic cruise control and so on are, are basically commodities at this point. You work with the tier one, you get the component, put it in the car, and it's done. I guess I question, I don't know whether uh, this, maybe sometime way distant in the future, this is a, a commodity. I think there's going to be very few companies that ultimately unlock the promise of full autonomy, A to B, no fixed routes can literally take you anywhere within a, a particular the confines of a city. I think there's only so many companies that will come up with that. I think there will be a lot of interest in how is the tech built, like what's the team that was behind this, and I think the brand, the self-driving brand, if you will, or the platform, is going to be something people will want to know. You know, who knows? Maybe in the future there will be a certain driving style or DNA that people associate with. They say, look, I. I like the Argo driver. I feel comfortable. I feel safe. I like the way it handled X, Y, and Z, and they commit to it. I don't know. We'll see where this goes. But the driver, ultimately, whether it's a computer or not, I mean, has a huge impact on the consumer's experience. And so I think they're going to care. That's all intention with, you know, we talked about this year. There are lots more level two, level two plus driving systems on the market now. In particular, you said Ford has a big investment in Argo. Ford has Blue Cruise, which they're going to roll out, and that can drive a Mustang Mach-E or an F-150 down a bunch of highways all by itself. Do you have any involvement in Blue Cruise? Is that a different product? How does that interact with what you're doing? So we don't have involvement in Blue Cruise or um, any of the uh, the driver assistance technology that you would maybe call level two or level two plus. Some people use that phrase now. We don't have involvement in those products today. On the commoditization point, do you think as those brands get more prevalent and companies like Ford and Mercedes and VW and whoever else starts to market those features as brands, they will ultimately subsume like full self-driving like Argo's doing? I don't know. It's a good question. I, I get asked this all the time. And uh, the, the answer I've, I've had for years now is it really is no clear stepping stone from basic driver assistance to full-scale autonomy. You just need 
way more sensors, way more computing capability and so on and so forth to achieve full autonomy where no human needs to be in the loop. Now, over time, there, I think there will be a point where there's a crossover, right? But it isn't going to look like a stepping stone. It isn't going to look like a year or two from now we're going to get there. To me, there's still huge advancements that would need to be made for that to be practical. I mean, look, just even the cost of the technology today, regardless of your technical approach, is going to be pretty high for uh, fully autonomous vehicles to the point where it makes most sense to deploy those in captive fleets that are maintained, curated, clean, serviced, et cetera, and deployed on a sort of per mile per trip basis. At some point, though, you know, these volumes will go up in these fleets. Component cost will come down over time. I can't predict when this will happen, but it will happen. And at some point, you'll be able to offer this on personally owned vehicles. And at that point, you know, has has there been major changes where the sensor footprint of the car has decreased or where it's starting to blend more with what level two systems may have become at that point? I don't know. I'm so far in the future, though, Eli, that I just, (laughs) I can't, I don't know how to, I just put a bunch of dots on the screen for you. I have no idea how to connect them yet, time-wise. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to try and connect some of the dots that Brian was just talking about. Support for the show comes from the Harvard Business Review, the leading destination for smart management thinkers. You're a business leader, which means you have to deal with several different issues week after week. Look, it can be tough being the one calling the shots, but the Harvard Business Review can be a good place to help lighten the load on your shoulders. There's a lot of great stuff you can find at hbr.org, but for just $10 a month, you can get access to unlimited content, including insider newsletters, case studies, and the HBR mobile app. I had a chance to check out hbr.org, and let me tell you, the articles and case studies are very enlightening. Plus, you'll find podcasts, case studies, videos, newsletters, so much more. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code DECODER right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to hbr.org slash subscriptions, enter promo code DECODER to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. Support for this podcast comes from HIMSS. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. Before the break, you laid out some points on where there could be some major changes to self-driving technology. I wanted to push on that a little bit. You talk about fleets, that's obviously taxi fleets, commercial fleets. That makes sense. You're, you have a high cost of vehicle. You want to run them all the time, get your money back out of them. No average person needs to run their car that much or uses their car for commercial reasons that much. And let's face it. Most people in cities today, they have no desire to drive in, in, or even own a car because it's so punitive cost-wise. So, yeah, I, I, I totally buy that. At the same time, Lyft was pursuing its own autonomy research Uber rated your alma mater, Carnegie Mellon, for all of their autonomy researchers. This was their promise, right? The rideshare companies were sort of explicitly founded on, we're going to build the distribution network, we're going to get people using the system, we're going to invest heavily in autonomy, we're going to put the robot cars on the road, our costs are going to drop, and that's how we're going to become giant profitable companies. That just didn't happen for them. They couldn't get there. Uber has walked away from it. Lyft is obviously partnered with you now. 
is that a data point for or against your position that's going to happen in fleets first? Uh, I think it's a data point that says that most companies that got into the self-driving game in you know circa 2015 or whatever it was just had no idea how hard the problem was. I think as talent moves across the industry and folks get educated, I think they come around to what you know, people like me who've been doing this for a while and have always known, which is <laughs> this isn't a light switch. It's not going to happen overnight. And uh, it's a time capital intensive thing. I mean, look, the basic supply base, you know, when I started Argo in 2016, the fundamental sensors we needed didn't really exist, right? At least not in any production capacity. We're now finally getting there because there's been investment across the industry to get what we need. But, you know, I never believed back then the companies that were saying, yeah, we're going to deploy in 12 months or 18 months. It was just it was just nuts to think that. But they were, I mean, they were heavily incentivized and they were spending lots of money. Why do you think they failed? I don't know. You have to, I mean, you have to ask them, right? I don't know that any one thing failed. If you look at the partnering that's happened, by and large, each of these teams has invested, built teams, and uh, there's been M&A that, I mean, value was created, right, in all of these deals. So I, I always hesitate to call things a failure. It may not have taken the turns that everyone thought it would, but hey, it was new. I spent a lot of time thinking about the 5G hype cycle and how it didn't pan out, and I was made to believe that there was some sort of race to 5G that was important. And now it's here, and I have middling AT&T mid-band 5G on my phone. <laughs> it's fine. One of the things we were absolutely promised about 5G was that it would be a key enabling technology for autonomous vehicles. And I have probably watched more cell carrier marketing reels where, like, you know, like the Wi-Fi beams were hitting silver cars and animations. And it was it was just the promise. It was there. 5G is here now. It's widely deployed. Has it made a meaningful difference to your roadmaps, to your capabilities? No. So I think the, the value prop was, okay, all this expensive compute you have in the car, move it to the cloud. 5G is going to be this super resilient, robust network that never fails, offers huge amount of bandwidth and extremely low latency. That was the promise, right? In, in reality, the latency is better. The bandwidth <laughs> is improved, <laughs> right? But uh, it is not. It still is not infrastructure you can count on for doing like the basic decision making, like where is the pedestrian in front of my car this instant, right? So I can steer and brake appropriately. I always thought this is, again, part of the hype cycle. I agree. I, I just think it was uninformed. Um, it has its place as a value-added part of the ecosystem, it is not overnight and on its own going to fundamentally change the architecture and, and how we how we approach building a self-driving car for those reasons. Do you think we need to build custom networks, vehicle-to-vehicle, vehicle-to-infrastructure to, to enable self-driving? So I think, and I'm going to put self-driving aside for a second, I don't understand why we don't have a set of standards that everybody has embraced where a vehicle is prevented from running a red light. To me, that is just, we should, that's like table stakes. Like, why can't we get that done? Okay, so, so my view is, yes, if you want to talk about just some of the simplest applications, let's start there and, and get some traction on a standard and, and get funding to deploy this as part of our infrastructure, right? Let's start with things that everybody can understand and get in and get around. Uh, now, now long-term, for self-driving, that does have a benefit in that, yeah, I mean, eventually that networked fleet is... And I look at it as an additional sensor that provides additional information about what's in and around the vehicle that is always helpful. There, did you see the crazy test in Las Vegas, I think it was, where some company said they were going to run self-driving cars on T-Mobile's 5G network? Uh, I don't know that I saw that one. Well, it just at the end of the day, it turned out that they were drones. Like They just had a bunch of people like in a data center with joysticks driving the cars. Okay. Is that a viable path forward? No, I, I don't think that helps with the economics of this <laughs> of the equation. Um, also, you know, driving with any amount of latency remotely is really difficult. So um, there's lots of ways you can try to mitigate that, but uh, that is not going to have the promise that we all want to see in terms of um, in terms of safety and efficiency. What was particularly funny about that is they announced that very proudly they were on this was T-Mobile 5G powered cars. And T-Mobile was like, 
we're not really a part of this. Like it was just one of those like odd, <laughs> strange tech demo announcements. And it, I missed this one. Okay, uh, this is good. I got to look this up. I'll send it to you afterwards. But the, what, what struck me about it was we did hear all of this hype about 5g specifically is related to self-driving cars. And that was the only pure application of the network technology to enable something that even remotely looked like 5g. And it doesn't seem like it was a great idea. It doesn't sound like it. No, I, I'm not sure what the point of that was. We've talked a lot about Ford. We've talked about Lyft. Your other big partner is VW. Describe that partnership and what kind of products you're making with them. Are you doing taxis with them in, in Europe or something? Yeah, so the plan is to deploy in Europe. Uh, they've picked an initial city in Hamburg. Uh, we also have a, an office in Munich. We've started some uh, small testing in Munich. We're launching on the, the ID Buzz platform. They, they announced that. They've not shown pictures of it yet, so that will be forthcoming. I think it's going to be an outstanding vehicle really consistent with their sort of DNA and what they know how to do best, but also very unique, very flexible. I think we'll have a platform that's going to be fantastic for both moving people and goods. It's an all-electric vehicle, which we're really excited about. I think it's going to be great. We work with them very, very similar to how we work with Ford and and what we discussed earlier. Co-create, co-develop, really work very closely with them on the modification of that platform for autonomy. Um, And we're definitely excited to get their cars uh, on the road later this year testing it's interesting you call that the id buzz great name by the way um the id buzz is all electric the the last time we spoke uh you actually mentioned that you didn't think the propulsion system of the car was important right and obviously the escape is a hybrid it's got a gas engine in it i've talked to other folks in the self-driving and related industries and they're pretty adamant that it has to be an electrified car you don't want the complexity of the ICE engine to do all this other stuff you're doing. Yeah, what we talked about before was the, a very specific issue, which was around utilization and how much time the car sits at a charger, mm-hmm. right? And, and the business dynamics around that. The car needs to be electrified without question. Whether it's hybrid or all electric, you need that power for the computing and sensors that are on board the vehicle. That was never up for debate. And electric was always the pathway but you're right. I, I was definitely saying in the in the short term, if you were to build a business and deploy it in in the short term, especially in this was now a year and a half earlier, what I was looking at was hybrid still had a lot of advantages in that you can keep the car on the road for extended periods of time earning revenue. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody has to make that calculation of when do you think you're ready to launch. And sort of what is the state of sort of range charging time? Can you fast charge it without destroying and replacing batteries all the time? All of that. And I I think that's a moving, as battery technology improves at a rapid rate, I think all of that is certainly changing. Do you think the individual cars you're going to operate in Miami or Austin or Hamburg, are they going to be profitable individual cars or is this a data collection subsidy? Uh, boy, profitable. So, I mean, in the context of all the investment that's been made to this to date, no, I mean, we're we're looking at this certainly from a from a revenue perspective, right? Revenue is king. That's important to get when you're first starting <laughs> out, right? I, a profitable and break even, and those are things that we'll talk about year, uh, a few years from now. No, but just in the context, uh, I, I understand that the first car is the most expensive one. It has all yeah, the R and D cost in it, but just from the the really dumb Excel spreadsheet math of this is how many dollars it costs to make this car and buy all the parts, and we're going to run it for however long we're going to run it in Miami and pick up customers with Lyft. Will that car pay for itself? If that car lasts on the road long enough, yes. What exactly is that horizon? I, I'm not in a position to give those numbers, but it's conceivable. I, I don't know that it's realistic in the very first generation. Let me push on uh, one of the other dots you you threw up for us to connect. (laughs) One of the things you said was it's going to be fleets first because you can get the economics right. I think the pushback there is, well, the big tech companies that operate fleets, like shakier, and I take your point that they they did generate some value. The other thing you said was eventually the cost will come down and it'll hit consumer vehicles and it'll be small enough and cheap enough that you can just like put it in a car that you can buy. A few months ago, I interviewed Austin Russell, who's the CEO of Luminar, smart guy. His point was, we're not doing robo-taxis. My whole goal is to drive that cost curve down and make small sensors and make a package, and the place you want this is in a consumer car. And he was pretty adamant about it. 
What is the back and forth there? Is that, is that sort of an active industry is going to sort itself out conversation or is that two companies that just aren't in the same lane? Yeah, I didn't hear, I didn't listen to Austin's episode, so it's, I don't know all the Wait, context Decoder around it. Decoder is the hottest podcast in town, man. I, I, I have listened to many of your others. What are you doing in the I back did, of these self-driving cars? I didn't happen to listen to Austin's. <laughs> uh, you're doing a great job, by the way. Your interviews, your interviews are fantastic. Um, I think Austin has a product that he's saying is going to be ideal for driver assist applications and more power to him sell into that, right? But the bottom line is that to do full autonomy, the car needs to see in all directions out to a really long range, especially to operate at all speeds, right? And so I don't know that that small sensor he was telling you was going to go into a driver assistance application is really going to scale to what's necessary for full self-driving. I just think they're two completely different applications. And again, this gets to everybody trying to make guesses as to, okay, is there a crossover point where like those tech stacks like eventually converge? I don't see that happening for many years from now. And, and I guess history will see if I'm right or not. Let's unpack that a little bit for people who are listening, because I feel like I have an intuitive understanding of the difference between driver assistance and full self-driving. I'm not sure it's rigorous. And I feel like the industry is doing its best to, to muddy the difference there. Did you see Alex Roy's article on this? The I Roy's Razor? He's calling it Roy's Razor. Did you see this? No. What's Roy's Razor? Roy's Razor. His, his, he has a very simple test for is it full self-driving or not, which is can you sleep in it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great test. But I'll just say it. People do dumb things in their Teslas, which are advertised to have a thing called full self-driving or autopilot. There's a lot of confusion there. So what what in your mind is beyond just can you sleep in it? What is the difference? What is the line that you can evaluate? Do you have to pay attention and keep your hands on the wheel or not? Is it hands off, mind off or not? To me, that's the fundamental question, regardless of what marketing terms you use. At the end of the day, Tesla is very clear that you need to be paying attention, have your, your hands on the wheel, and be prepared to take over if the technology is not going to do the right thing. Certainly, people are, are free at, at this moment. It would appear people are free to use that product however they want at their own risk. My view is that regardless of what marketing terms we use, we're never going to speak to the everyday consumer when we use terminology like L2, L2 plus. Let me listen to myself <laughs> on this show this last hour, L4. Well, you know, Neil, I'm not sure that L3, right? I can, I can talk all day long, right? And people are just, their eyes are going to glaze over. My mother was asking me this question the other day and, uh, and, she, and her eyes glazed over. Uh, so we need to come up with a framework to communicate what is it? And what can it do and not do? I remember hearing a story uh, a while back about Volvo and some pedestrian detection technology that they had. And they were running through a test for a customer and uh, the salesperson leapt out in front of the car and got run over. Well, you know what? The car wasn't equipped with it. It turned out it was an option. That car did not have that option. <laughs> so I don't know if that story is accurate or not, but we clearly are not putting this information out there in an easy-to-use, easy-to-understand way. And to me, that's the thing that the whole industry needs to solve. And not just autonomy. I'm saying this is an automotive industry issue that we need to push on. There's a big trust component to this, right? Take your hands off the steering wheel, put your mind away. A lot of people are not comfortable with that. Speaking of mothers, I tried to get my mom to use the adaptive cruise control in her, right. her Mercedes. Yeah. And she just didn't yeah. want to – she was like, no, I prefer to just – I don't trust this car to stay away from the car in front of me. It's like back, my mother doesn't like to use the backup camera, Neil. I like, and I say, but it's so simple. It's right there. It's, no, she's using her mirrors. She's just like, ah, that confuses me. I'm like, how does it confuse me? She says, there's lines on it. So the lines help you understand where the <laughs> steering wheel is pointed. She's like, no, 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 that's confusing. And it's like there's a feel and thing that like, I don't know what it is. But yeah, I mean, this is education. Like it shows you that change is actually not that easy for a consumer that isn't, you know, immersed in the tech day in and day out. So this is the, the big question. Do you think Tesla rolling out autopilot in beta, letting people do dumb things with it, constantly generating news cycles about it going sideways? There was a video the other day where it was getting confused by the moon in the sky. I don't know if you saw it, but it kept I saw the moon. It. Yeah, it was a yellow light. Yellow light. Um, do you think that stuff yeah. is just poisoning the well? Is it making change harder? 
Maybe. You know, here's what I wonder. So out of out of the, the autopilot accidents, the collisions that have occurred, I'd really be interested in those who can be interviewed to just say, did you know how the product was intended to be used? And did you knowingly, like, use it differently? Or, or just did you knowingly ignore the instructions? I wonder, you know, and now I'm going to put the counterpoint to what I was just saying. Maybe it actually isn't so so much an education thing. And it's just it goes back to uh, the old adage with doing consumer products, which is if there's a way to abuse it, it will be abused. I, I don't know. Maybe that's what's at play here. I think it's worthy of discussion, though, because it's clear that there is a problem and we, we need to get to the bottom of is it edu- maybe it's all the above maybe it's it's education and it's also hey you know what maybe a driver monitoring system is not a bad thing like if your car really does require a person to stay focused on the road maybe you actually need to monitor and make sure that they are uh, for it to be engaged or stay engaged like th- there's conversations here that um, I think are really important to be having right now because at the end of the day the core foundational case for all of this, in my view, is safety. It's There's convenience element to it as well, but these are safety products at the end of the day. Do your, the cars you're deploying with Lyft, do they have driver monitoring for the safety drivers? Yes. And so you're just paying attention. Is Are those safety drivers eyes front, hands on the wheel? Absolutely. So they have to have their hands on the wheel? They need to be hovering their hands over the wheel. They need to have their eyes focused and trained on the road or in their mirrors, right? They need to be scanning so those are rules that I'm assuming you and Lyft have written together about how, how safe you want the cars to be. Another way of writing those rules is for governments in cities and states and countries to write a bunch of regulations about self-driving cars or what you want safety drivers to be doing. That's also connected to public perception and fear of change. The last time we spoke, I think you said we, we need a unified way of thinking about this so this actually becomes a market. I feel like, again, a lot has changed in the past year and a half. Have the regulators gotten antsier, in your view? Have they gotten more open to it? What does that look like? I think they're asking a lot of questions, um, and they've been asking a lot of questions <laughs> over the years, right? Um, and I think at some point we need to convene, because it isn't tractable, nor is it a good thing for the consumer or for the companies building this, to have 50 different rules across 50 different states, you know, plus then city-specific uh, guidelines. It just doesn't work. It makes a really hard, complex problem even harder. I hope that we're able to come together. I'm optimistic. Um, I mean, I, I think the administration has said positive things about self-driving and, and acknowledging the benefits that it has in terms of safer, cleaner transportation. But now we got to take that and use it as inspiration for getting a framework that works. What do you think that framework looks like? Well, I, I think we all need to ha- convene and have have good discussion around it. I mean, there's there was a bill that was, I forget the exact stage in the process that it was in, but was close. I think it was part of the Endless Frontiers Act. It at least provides for a deployment pathway and increases the cap on the number of vehicles that any one company can deploy. It also clarified a number of things. That's a start, right? I mean, it, it at least acknowledges at the federal level that self-driving is something that we support and we want to kind of move forward with. Right now, I think we're just, it's stalled. And, and I don't think it's good for our country, uh, especially when you look at Europe, you look at Germany that's now passing regulation, not just for the testing of cars, but also the commercial deployment. Um, You see what China is doing. We are falling behind and it's not good. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we'll have more with Brian Selesky. Support for Decoder comes from Shopify. Some people might say cat memes built the internet but it's e-commerce that keeps the lights on. If you've dreamt of building a business, Shopify can be a great place to start. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. It doesn't matter if you're a well-established global brand or selling handcrafted goods out of your home workshop. Shopify has the tools to help you go further. Like their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic, or their built-in marketing tools that can help you create, execute, and analyze campaigns. You can sell wherever, too, online or with their in-person point-of-sale system. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. 
because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash decoder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash decoder now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And we're back. You obviously work with two big partners in Ford and Volkswagen. We see a bunch of change in the car industry. There's new car companies that are very exciting. They're spinning up. There's all kinds of investment activity. There's also a lot of consolidation. So as you look across that landscape, where do you think your truest competitors are? Well, I always leave those those things to, to fellows like you to, to call well, out for me. But I have me. to ask you. You, but you follow this really closely. You, you, you have an answer. I, look, I think we're in such an exciting time where a lot of good ideas are getting funded. I saw a chart in the Wall Street Journal the other day that showed just the, the huge, like, enormous growth in startup capital. I think it's a really exciting time, right? And, and the way I look at it is this technology, wh- whoever gets it fielded, right, and deployed, whoever makes it at the end of the day, as long as they're following the right practices and processes and view it not just as a convenience but also a safety function, I think is going to have a huge transformative impact on the world. Uh, and it's, it's going to mean safer, cleaner, easier transportation worldwide. That's what we're after Regardless of who my competitors are or who's going to end up deploying it, I, I think those that stay true to that that vision and deliver on it, I think are going to be incredible, long-lasting companies. Well, one of the reasons I ask comes back to that commodification question. Is there just a first-mover advantage where if you happen to get to the finish line first, everyone else is going to just start buying Argo stack and deploying it? Or is there... You know, many markets are winner take all. Do you think self driving is winner take all? Uh, no, I don't think it's winner take all. I, I think that there's, uh, you know, I say it all the time. There's three trillion miles driven in the U.S. alone. A huge percentage of those are actually passenger miles. So, I, I think that the opportunity is enormous. I think you're going to see different companies specialize in automating different fractions and slices of those miles. And I think there's incredible businesses to be built even just within those those slices. One way you can measure this competition, I don't know if I love it, but you're just going to tell me it's my job to figure it out, but we're going to try anyway. One way to measure this competition is miles driven. How many miles did our robots drive this week? And the reason I bring it up is because Waymo, which I think is a competitor of yours, loves to tout how many miles it's driven. It's billions of more miles than anyone can even comprehend. Waymo says it's driven. Is that the right measure? Is that a measure you use? No, it isn't. Uh, Just because depending on where you operate, you're driving at different speeds. And so, you know, the unit of work for any given vehicle on any given day is is very different, right? Uh, I I could put up a huge mileage number and have it all be on highway. That's very different than driving Ocean Drive in Miami. So, you know, not all miles are the same. Not it's it's really an apples to oranges measurement. I do think that being clear about where you're driving is and and what the complexity is and what, what the industry terms as the operational design domain, which is just describing what are the types of streets and roads, et cetera, that you're driving on. I think is really important to disclose just as much as as mileage if you're going to use mileage as your benchmark. Mileage is obviously a proxy for data collected. Right. They're, the sensors are reading a bunch of data. They're running machine learning algorithms. They need a vast amount of data to make those algorithms smarter. Is that data collected? Is that the right? I mean, data is useful, but, but again, you know, data on you know, I-75 is going to be very, very different than data in, uh, you know, on Broadway. So like, I, I just think that, again, it's, it's all about the environment and, 
And if we want to start looking at the diversity of data, maybe that's a way to look at it, right? Is what are, what is the diversity in the different environments and cases that you've seen and recorded and are testing against? And how well is the system performing against those test cases? I mean, that's ultimately what autonomous driving companies are looking at internally. It may not get published, but that's what we're looking at. Whenever we talk about data collection, we have to talk about privacy. We'll use the Lyft car as a, a tiny example. Lyft knows who you are, right? You, you sign into Lyft, you call the car, maps a, a route. Lyft can kind of throw that away after a while, right? Like they're running a logistics business in some way. They want to know where their cars need to be. For a giant machine learning data set, you need to hold on to that data. So how are you anonymizing? Is that something you've had to think about? Totally anonymized for us. We aren't trying to identify anybody. Um, we're purely using the data to understand, is it a vehicle? Is it a person? Is it a bike, a scooter? Uh, is the pedestrian motorized, as we've called it? <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Like we're, we're trying to understand that so that we can predict and understand, like, what are the movements you're going to make to ensure safety? Um, we're not handling the um, PII in, in, in that engagement. You don't make the sort of user-facing interface of the car, right? You're very focused on autonomy, tying into the car's existing systems. I'm sure with Lyft, there's going to be some consumer software interface element. But one of the things I've noticed as I've talked to car companies and the CEO, the CEO of Ford, the CEO of Polestar, they're aware that they can't just give the center stack of the car away to CarPlay and Android Auto anymore. It's It's got to be good, and they've got to win that back. Because as cars start to drive themselves, they can't just be like, it's CarPlay. They need people to use their maps, their interface to understand how the cars operate. Where in that dynamic do you see Argo playing? Is it all in the background? Do you want an Argo interface? How does that work out? It's a little bit in the background. The part that we concentrate on is we want to provide displays that assure the riders that the car is operating safely and correctly. So we do have a display that we build at Argo that shows the scene you know, in and around the vehicle, the locations of the different objects around the vehicle. You know, we'll show the upcoming trip and routes and like what the next turn it's going to make, that kind of thing. In terms of like the dashboard for a consumer vehicle and getting into sort of the, the map wars and the different companies screaming for your attention and screen time, that's not a battle that we're in the middle of right now. But you need to have maps to run your system, right? Who's your map provider? We do, but they aren't the types of maps that you would give to a to a consumer. They're maps that help the car drive. They're kind of high-resolution maps that um, help the vehicle figure out what location it's in, like exactly where it is within a lane and so on. It, it isn't uh, navigational. I mean, that's an element to it, right? But that's it's, it's a little bit of a different use case. I don't think I understand. So if I get into one of these lifts in Austin or Miami or one of these ID buzzes, still a great name, in Hamburg, and I'm like, I want to go to this bar. There has to be some sort of consumer-facing map that's showing me, like, here's how long it will take. Here's the roads we're going to take. That has to get translated into instructions for the car to operate. And yes. is that, does that happen based on the map that I'm seeing or a different map? You picking where you want to go and showing your current location and, and trying to find points of interest and all of that, at least with the Lyft engagement, that will be through the Lyft app, the Lyft map, that will be the Lyft system. Ultimately, trip data gets sent to us. And yes, we do have uh, an understanding of addresses and locations and how to navigate the vehicle. My point is that those systems, though, are, are kind of optimized for the driving function. The actual UI presented to the user is on the Lyft end of things. We, we don't have involvement in that part of it. As you think about making more consumer vehicles or far into the future, you know, Ford has a big partnership with Google now. Volvo uses Android Auto. All these companies are kind of headed in that direction. Is that a partnership that you foresee needing to navigate? Is that just something happening over there and, and you're the provider of a capability? I think we'll see, right? We'll see how all this plays out. I mean, this is another, um, I mean, t you're, you're pushing on an issue that sort of big picture, the, the, the interior real estate of the vehicle is a huge opportunity. And, um, you know, we'll see where we want to play in that space. But your point is totally valid, right? It is extremely valuable real estate, especially when you're no longer driving and can be staring at a screen. 
Do you think we are all going to be facing ads in the interior of our car when we're not driving? I I certainly uh, hope that uh, however ads enter, that it's done tastefully. <laughs> Every so. year at CES, I get pitched on come see the future of ads for self-driving cars. And I don't go to those meetings, but I know they're happening and they terrify yeah. me. I think Minority Report uh, did a great job of showing like what the future could be. And I'm not sure that's what we want. <laughs> all right. Last question. It's a total toss up because I don't think anybody really knows. What do you expect if and when Apple enters this game? Uh, the iCar? Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, we'll see what they what they come up with, what they're working on. It seems like it's pivoted a lot just from what I see in the press. I don't have any privileged information. I, I, it just seems like it's they've pivoted a few times, and I, I'm not sure what they're doing. But uh, I am an Apple user. I revere their design philosophy, and I, I think it's really incredible products they put together, right? Uh, if they did a custom like Apple car, I would want to use it and try it. I mean, uh, I'm sure it would be nothing short of like pretty amazing from an industrial design perspective. So that alone, I would nerd out on it for sure. I'm not sure that I would trust a car driven by Siri. That's uh, that's like in my heart. I'm like, I'm not sure Siri's driving. <laughs> 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 right. Fair. Fair enough. I think Siri's there to, 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 to be your personal assistant when you're in the car. I don't know that Siri's doing the driving. <laughs> I certainly hope not. All I right. What's not. next for Argo and what should people expect? Uh, well, what's next are, uh, rides in Austin, Miami with Lyft and I'm excited about that and, uh, looking forward to deploying here in the next couple of years. It's going to be exciting. Awesome, man. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on Decoder. As always, just a great conversation. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks again to Brian Selesky for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. We are edited by Callie Wright, and our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.